Today I'm driving a, a truck that's not mine. Didn't steal it. Uh, it's my buddy Andrew's. We got Andrew Whitney on the podcast. And you know why he's here? I'll tell you why. Because he's the only guy that I'm friends with that I know just said no mask. <laughs> Straight <laughs> off the bat. No mask. I respected that because that was my stance. No wear a mask. And here we are. Here we are. Uh, we went scouting. Why don't actually, Andrew, why don't you tell the fine folks of the interwebs who you are? What do you do? What makes you tick? Uh, so I'm Andrew Whitney. Uh, I work for Stone Glacier Backpacks with my friend Zach here. Um, I have been in Montana for well, like 12 years. I moved here in 2008 to go to school and pretty much never picked up and left. Uh, just kind of made it my home and uh, have been grinding away at killing elk and um, making them dead, making them dead, and perfecting my archery game ever since. So uh, the things that make me tick are predominantly my black Labrador Remy, <laughs> who's, who Zach is really super fond of. Love um, hate, love hate, love hate. And then elk hunting, man. Elk hunting just does it for me through and through. I think about it day in and day out, year round, pretty much. You're a big crossbow hunter? Or? Yeah. Uh, never owned a crossbow in my life. I've actually never shot a crossbow in my life. <laughs> have you? Uh, no, I, I have not, but it I've, does seem pretty fun. I've seen them and held them, but yeah, I've, I've actually never discharged one. Didn't let the arrow fly. No. No, crossbows aren't for me. I, they have their place in this world. Uh, but I don't think it's in the elk woods during September. No, I agree. If you talk to Lyle, he really agrees. He's got a pretty strong opinion about that. Yep. Mm -hmm. So uh, we went scouting. I never have been to this unit. Old uh, Uncle Andrew has. Yep. And he's, uh, he's killed some bulls out here. And basically, we wanted to go... Uh, Go check it out. Maybe look at a couple other spots. Have a little backup plan. We're gonna give it give it hell this fall, and try to kill two bulls. Yeah, well, potentially four, four potentially, bulls. Not supposed to say, but maybe on film. <laughs> More than likely, <laughs> it's gonna we'll be say. on film. Yeah. Um, <clears throat> what did we learn? Yeah, so I've hunted this unit a couple of years now and killed a couple of bulls out of it. And uh, Zach has hunted nearby, but not this exact unit. And I convinced him that we should go back, um, or, I or at least he should go back to this area, this general area. And so we both applied and drew our tags that were necessary to hunt this unit and we just made our first scouting trip out there first and only scouting trip out there um and it was pretty productive i've i've kind of honed in a few areas and and um only hunted them i haven't done much to branch out because they've been um quite productive over the last couple of years so Anyway, we went up to learn potentially some new areas, figure out a little bit more of the road system and how we could use it to facilitate some access. Uh, we also 
knocked on a few doors and talked to some landowners, although we did not garner any permission. Uh, we had some good conversations and ultimately acquired some intel. So uh, the scouting trip was good. We did pioneer a new spot. Um, we got in late Friday night, Friday evening, and glassed for like, I hiked in a couple miles and glassed for, I don't know, an hour, hour and 15 minutes, and probably saw 20 cows, something like that. Yeah, 15 um, or 20, yeah. something there, did, here did, and there. Yeah, didn't see a bull in there, but... Um, <coughs> As everybody knows, where there's cows, there will be bulls in September. So um, that's a good thing. It is. It is a. It's an area where elk are pretty free to move around. They're not, um, you know, they're not uniquely located in one part of the mountain or the other. So they're they definitely move. Um, but it's good to see the country. It's good to get a feel for it, uh, just so you can, you know, be as effective as possible without having hunted it previously so we got eyes on some cool country yeah uh for me it was good because uh you look at maps and you think one thing and then you get out there and it looks way different and the first area we scouted which i think we both thought was going to be good so it was adjacent to a piece that we've been looking at and heard that there might be some good hunting in and so kind of knew it was going to be a cool spot. I thought it was going to be a lot more open than it was. It was actually quite a bit larger and a lot more timber, which were two things that I was pretty pretty happy with. Even though we didn't see bulls, there's a lot of country to move around in there. And it's very broken, lots of folds, creases, and uh, can hide a lot of animals. So that was good. And it's not really super obvious from the main road. No, not by any means. It, it's actually like... It's one of those spots you uh, you might look at and see that it's accessible, but just by the looks of it from the road and like the mile or two you can see, you're like, meh, maybe that's not worth my time. Maybe you know, maybe I should move on and try to find a better spot or more difficult access or something like that. But yeah, it was it was ultimately pretty productive and, and worth the hike in there. Yeah, so we got a season milk and we talked to a landowner he shut us down but he was nice we did gather some intel so he didn't say yes this year but if we have a good season which i'm assuming we will we might want to come back andrew probably will mm -hmm. and uh i think you know persistence can lead to some access we learned so he we got there already knew their names kind of started off well i petted their dog you know it was all good we were hanging out chatting them up they were eating cherries very lots, nice lots looking of them. tasty cherries so i was like we could come back next year and bring cherries and say hey ken here's some cherries how about we hike through your property this year <laughs> you might say no but we might learn something else and then we might come back on year three with cherries and something else and he might be like hey these guys have been out here i feel like i kind of get to know them a little bit they seem nice sure why don't you guys go on through and he didn't really want to open the door up to more access and having to say yes to more people but he does let some people come through yeah so his, his that was like there's there's a possible opening eventually there yeah, yeah, for sure. It's not a hard no for everybody, which means 
anything is possible, right? So we'll, but, we'll keep after it. I'll keep after it, and uh, maybe eventually he'll crack and let yeah. us take a hike through his property. We didn't learn anything crazy, but I I think, in the you know, I haven't talked to a ton of landowners, but I feel like a lot of these ranchers that live out away from, from the city, they like to talk to people. They don't get to see people too often. If you kind of ask the right questions in the right way, I feel like they sometimes will reveal some information out. I don't think we got anything too crazy out of him, but we learned a few things that, you know, could have been something bigger than they were. But, uh, yeah, just be nice. I, I think reiterating the fact that we want to talk to him in person versus calling him is always nice. Yeah, I, I think, think I think they appreciate that quite a bit. Yeah, he so, did. Uh, he did have a pile of six-point elk sheds mm-hmm. in his front yard, mm-hmm. which. Zach and I both queued into very quickly. Um, he had a couple nicer ones next to the house, which I saw. Yeah. And so that basically gives you a little bit of information on surrounding land. <laughs> yeah. <and I'm laughs> so just based off of who he was and the way he carried himself, I'm going to say he's not out there pounding the hills for sheds. So no. I'm guessing that these sheds were easily acquired in his travels on his tractor or his truck or yep you know with without without putting in a lot of effort so yeah so yeah we scouted i <laughs> and uh we had a little ways to go the next spot i was like we should just get a little ways down the road so we don't have to drive as far in the dark uh this morning <clears throat> we get there pull my sleeping bag out lo and behold i didn't bring a sleeping pad I usually throw it in with my sleeping bag. Not this time. Mm, rookie, so I pulled, I pulled the ultralight move and just laid on the ground with my sleeping bag, <clears throat> which wasn't as terrible as I thought it was going to be. And then uh, got up this morning, drove into a new area, which we actually were able to drive in a lot further than we thought. I feel like, at least in these areas, uh, where there's a lot of public and private and the roads are kind of iffy. It's really just nice to drive the roads, honestly, and figure out where they go and where you can connect stuff. Uh, because when there's not a lot of roads, sometimes it's a long haul to move locations. And in Montana, it's a big ass state. And so you can be spending an hour, two, three hours, depending on how far you want to move across a unit or have to drive around Third roads are crappy in spots. Um, but we saw some deer and headed out. We drove a road that I had, had done a little research because we were sitting back at home looking at maps. Andrew was like, oh, I came through here. And, like, the land, this guy came out of his house and told me, you know, I couldn't, couldn't drive through his property, which I looked into it. And the road's definitely a public road. And we kind of drove it the opposite direction, and it definitely came through. So we learned that if that guy comes out next time, there'll probably be a little bit more of a conversation. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, I I, uh, I definitely flopped on that one. It was a few years back, and he uh, his demeanor and his approach pretty quickly indicated to me that he did not want me in there, uh, and he was maybe willing to stand his ground over it. And I was by myself, and I said, hey, that's fine. I'll, I'll go somewhere else, do something else. And 
Uh, yeah, come to find out that road is wide open. It's a public road, and I absolutely was in the right and within uh, legal means to, to be using it. But anyway, he denied me that year, but moving forward, that will not be the case. So, Yeah. <clears throat> then we went down into Andrew Spotty's hunt before and kind of poked around and got a peek around in a little bit of country he hadn't quite gotten to hunt through all of and decided i brought a couple cameras that have been sitting on my shelf in my garage and they don't do any good at home so uh hung a couple cameras up found some elk sign saw some tracks the elk are in there somewhere we did not see a single elk today some people might be like wow that sucks you guys are horrible at scouting but you know when it's hot and you're trying to just get a lay of the land it's a little tough to go in there and try to pick a bull out right now i mean you're really just trying to get squared away so when you come in and they're doing elk things like they're supposed to in september you kind of know how you're going to move around and set up and get from spot to spot so hung cameras and then uh that's kind of it yeah, I thought that was actually valuable being in there prior to the season because most of the time I'm in there during the season and I'm apprehensive about driving my truck and like yeah. I'm always playing the wind, right? Trying to trying to make sure I don't bump any bulls out of there, but it's so hot and I think those bulls or those elk in general are just tucked away wherever they're at. Um, it kind of afforded us the opportunity to uh, move around that place a little bit and figure out where every two track goes and um, you know what's what's accessible what's not etc without you know doing any damage to the elk or blowing them out of there this time of year yeah so that was pretty good we'll be back and I don't know if there's any other key takeaways we got to Sometimes going in, if you pay attention to the wind, that can be helpful. I don't know if it's really something you can count on out, out there, but it came from a couple different directions than I'd maybe have expected mm -hmm. based off of hunting elsewhere in some adjacent units. But, yeah. What else? Oh, is there anything else? Um, Remy, he Remy. was on the brink of death. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Not really, but... Yeah, Literally yeah. all we heard the first 12 hours of the trip was <laughs> we thought he burned maybe 1,800, 2,000 calories just panting. Yeah, possibly more. <laughs> yeah, so Remy is a, uh, he's an English black lab, so he's got a big blocky head and he's, he's uh, thick and built and has a super thick coat and he's black. Um, <laughs> So he does not excel in the heat and in the sunlight necessarily. So it was, yeah, he was kind of on the struggle bus. And, you know, granted it was hot. It was hot for us too, but he definitely did not endure it as well as we did. So, but he is currently happy as a clam and fast asleep in the back seat with the AC yeah, on. He's, so he's a good boy. He's going to make a full recovery. Um, what else do you want to talk about, Andrew? Let's talk about archery. Archery. So Andrew just he just he his bow is set up. 
shooting Matthews VXR, and he just tore that thing apart. And you got to hunt in what ten days? Uh, yeah, I leave on Monday to head to Nevada with my boss Jeff Spazito for a high country mule deer hunt. Um, and I just have been making some tweaks to the bow and this and that and the other thing, and decided to do a few things to it not not too too much but as we all know a little bit goes a long way in the archery world and especially in the way of tuning bows so uh, I have my work cut out for me this week but I'm sure I'll have it shooting in the next couple of days here so I kind of have a busy day tomorrow doing some antelope scouting and whatnot but uh Andrew Whitney scouting yeah <laughs> you heard it from the horse's mouth <laughs> Uh, how do you get into messing and fiddling with your own bow? Because that's a daunting challenge for some people. Yeah, it can be. Uh, I've been fortunate enough to befriend most of the guys, all the guys, really, uh, at my local pro shop. So they're all pretty willing to help me. And, and basically, it's just something that you have to take upon yourself to learn, right? Otherwise, you you end up watching someone do it for you, and you never really learn, and you pay for it and whatnot. So... Um, I just, um, you know, I was, I seek their advice and if I have questions, I ask them. Um, but yeah, it's just, it's just one of those things. It's like trying to figure out how to work on a small engine, right? You don't, you don't just start and know how to do it all. And it's not the same for every engine. It's not the same for every bow, but eventually you just get into it and learn and, um, make mistakes. Hopefully not the mistake of cutting your string or anything like that, but, um, yeah, it's just it's just uh, kind of a time honored process, right? Yeah, but how did you start? Like, you don't have your own equipment. Oh yeah, I just I just use the the bow press at the shop. Um, I shoot after hours a fair bit with uh, a guy by the name of Adam Henry, who's a really good shooter in town here. Um, and that, now that I'm shooting a Matthews, he's He's tickled to help me. <laughs> He's a big Matthews guy. <laughs> yeah. So, uh, yeah, I, I basically bounce all my questions, comments, and concerns off of him, and he'll basically mentor me on anything I have questions about as far as doing that stuff. But most of it you can find, you know, you can find all sorts of stuff about tuning bows and tying D-loops and reserving your strings and cables timing your bows etc online but it is nice to have a you know a guy you can bounce those things off of and um, learn from so what are your what are your three big keys for uh someone that's shot their bow for a little bit and they're wanting to be more accurate what are some things that help you as far as whether it's form whether it's how you prep your bow prep your arrows just the whole gamut whether it's how you prep for hunting are there couple things handful of things that you look for or try to do that you think help or have helped your archery progress yeah well i i fell into the deep dark hole of target panic uh three years ago or so um and i decided that was completely unacceptable and i was going to do everything in my power to overcome it and I worked with Joel Turner a little bit, uh, and he kind of got me set on the right path and taught me how to 
he basically taught me how to teach myself to eventually overcome it. And so I've been working on it for a couple of years now and I've pretty much never felt better. I've never executed better shots. So I think, I think a really important piece of the puzzle, which ultimately is missing from the beginning, right? Like this, this puzzle piece is omitted from the archery puzzle when you first buy a bow, because more often times than not, you go to a pro shop and they're running a business and they get you set up with a bow and arrows and a quiver and a rest and like, you know, tune your bow, um, whether it's a good tune or not, they get it, you know, shooting through paper or whatever, but they never really teach you how to shoot. Like they never yeah. teach you what a good shot is supposed to be like, right? So like they get you all set up with all this equipment and this happened to me too. Uh, and they send you on your way, right? And unless you know through perfecting shooting a rifle and squeezing through a rifle trigger or doing your own research, you basically get an index release, go to the range, and immediately start to teach yourself bad habits. Yeah. Right? So you're off on the wrong foot from the first arrow you shoot. So... A big thing to me, the most important thing is shot execution and the things that go along with that, right? Like trusting your pin float because basically nobody on the planet can hold their pin perfectly steady. Sure. So, um, yeah, to, to encapsulate it, shot execution is probably the most important thing. It just seems like it eliminates a lot of those flyers. You don't jump to target. Typically, it helps you make better shots under duress if you can repeat that process you know and we all get adrenaline rushes and we all get shakier and um are on uneven ground and uh unfamiliar terrain and right like basically uncharted terrain right yeah every bull comes in differently you have an awkward stance um you know it doesn't give you the window you're looking for or the timing or whatever so shot execution like just can you work through that process and make a good shot under pressure without punching the trigger so what did you do to get rid of target panic yeah so like i said i worked with joel turner and he set me on the right course i started shooting a carter evolution which is like it's it's maybe the only back tension release you can shoot that you can not cheat. Yeah. You cannot cheat a Carter Evolution. If you try, you will fail. Your shots will be terrible. You'll never be accurate. Uh, and for those who don't know, a Carter Evolution is a back tension style release, but it purely is operated off of back tension versus a hinge, which effectively rotates, versus a thumb, which you can punch or shoot with back tension. Uh, but basically a Carter Evolution, the way you would set it up is if you come to full draw and you hold 16 pounds at full draw, you would set your Carter Evolution to, say, 18 pounds or whatever, 17 pounds, 18 pounds. But it's more than your holding weight. Um, and basically you're going to execute a shot with back tension. And once you have applied that additional couple of pounds of pressure, the release will go off. So you get a surprise break every time. And very quickly, 
it will teach you what a good shot feels like. And in my case, as soon as I started shooting it, it totally changed my mental game, right? Because now I knew before anything else, I had to put my pin where it needed to be before I started my shot process. Um, a lot of times with target panic, people jump to target, whether it be from the bottom up or top down or left to right, etc. What he means by jump to target is you get your pin close and then push it into the target and punch the trigger as it's getting close, whether it's as it crosses over it or rises up to it or drops down to it. Right, which just which leads to inaccuracies, especially when you're shooting at animals, right? Mm -hmm. You don't have all the time in the world to do it, and your nerves are going, etc. So, um, so you shot the card, pop, 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 pop. Yeah, I just and I taught shot. I taught myself what it was supposed to be like if I was making good shots, um, and I I progressed to a hinge. Um, and carried that back tension principle through, which is how most people shoot a hinge. Some people will rotate it, right? Like very intentionally rotate it, but they'll do so at such a rate that if the shot's breaking down, they can stop and let their bow down. So there's a big difference between rotating it and executing a shot correctly and mashing a hinge and effectively punching it just like you would an index or a thumb release so yeah. made the jump to a hinge uh which has been phenomenal i really like shooting it i really like hunting with it i shoot my hinge better than i shoot any other release i've ever held so um what, that's, re what release are you shooting uh i have a true ball ht and then i have a carter two simple so i i go between the thumb and the hinge um, for no particular reason, just like one day I'll pick up the thumb and one day I'll pick up the hinge just to stay, um, you know, up to speed with both of them. Yeah. They both shoot the exact same spot. I anchor the exact same with them. So I can pretty, pretty easily go between the two. Nice. Um, probably, what else? Probably so execute a, sh a good shot. Yeah. The second thing I was going to say is I would be at the archery shop when your bow is being tuned oh yeah so a lot of people like to buy a bow buy arrows the whole get up and say here you go guys pay for their bow and walk out the shop and um you know when they come back they expect to get a bow and they expect it to be tuned and they expect it to work for them so everybody grips a bow differently everybody shoots differently sees through a peep differently um, so I think it's really valuable to be part of your tuning process. In the meantime, you might learn a thing or two about tuning a bow. Yeah, I think if you're going to want try to learn, you're definitely going to have to ask some questions. Like if the first shot through papers, knock left or, you know, yeah, knock you're high. not even going to know knock left, but it won't be a clean tear. Ask, hey, what does that mean? Yeah, most people. Oh, it's your it's knock left. Okay, what are you doing? What what are you doing right now? You know, and don't ask like, what are you doing? Like like they don't know what they're doing, but like in a way of like, I want to know, like what is the process of like fixing that as they're doing it? Which I think, if you approach it that way, most guys that are working on bows are gonna work 
through that with you and try to at least give you some of their insight on what they're doing to your bow. Yeah. I think you showing that you're uh, invested in it too probably is going to make them, you know, hopefully they would all do the same bow the same way, but, you know, they do get busy, so I'm sure sometimes they're not as in-depth as other times where if you're like, hey, what are you doing? How are we working through this? I, I feel like they're probably more invested in really dialing your bow in with you there. For sure. Yeah, if you if you show that your interest is peaked and that you want to work with them and perfect your bow and you know and effectively become the best archer you can be or start the process working to it, uh, most people at a pro shop will at least at a good pro shop will give you the time of day, right? Yeah. They're like this is why I did this. This is how I tied that knot. And if and if you have questions, if you're like, hey, what if my D loop fails in the field? Like, will you teach me how to tie a D loop? They're like, yeah, no brainer, man. Like, here's how you fix it. Actually, here's a piece of D loop too to put in your pack in case it does fail. Yeah. Um, you know, but if you walk in, you're like, hey, here's my money. Give me a bow. I want it tuned and walk out. You get just what you e- get. Yeah, you get what you get. Easy come, easy go. So, uh, what's my third thing? I would say shoot year round. Um, probably ninety. This is a sad. This is a sad number. Although it's not an exact number, I bet ninety plus percent of my friends and the archers that I know shoot their bow maybe a couple times a year, and most of it in like the August time frame, summer time frame leading up to archery season so i i shoot my bow year round i shoot all the winter leagues all the local winter leagues at both pro shops uh, but particularly extreme performance archery and bozeman and it just helps me stay fresh um it makes me know my equipment uh, and i just i just feel like i'm always progressing as an archer Right versus these like peaks and valleys where you don't shoot your bow for six months or seven months or whatever it may be after archery season, and then you pick it up and you're right back at the same place you were the the summer previous, and you don't know why things aren't working and your form has deteriorated, things like that. So I I think you don't have to shoot the way I do. Like I shoot my bow. Not every day, but most days, right? And yeah. maybe, maybe it's one arrow, maybe it's a hundred, but my bow is in my hand a lot, so I'm pretty familiar with it. I know when it needs to be tuned. I know when things are going awry. So uh, I think that's probably, man, that's probably as important as anything, honestly. And yeah, I guess those those three things aren't in any particular order, but they're three things I would pay attention to or, or try to uh, familiarize yourself with. Yeah, I think I've definitely been guilty of not shooting your round, although I don't anticipate that ever being a thing again because <laughs> I've been shooting a lot more this year than I ever have. Mm-hmm. And, you know, I think in the past, uh, I mean, I've shot my house before, but I, I always, I guess, felt like just shooting at home, even at like five yards, was like, eh, not getting that much out of it other than my muscle my back muscles were staying in shape but yeah now that i'm shooting a hinge and i'm focused on like my actual shot and trying to shoot 
with a not just a punched you know shot yeah i i get a lot of value out of going home and shooting 20 arrows into my target at you know five feet in my garage yep yeah i'm and i'm not uh i'm not a huge believer in the concept of blank bailing i think it's um i think it's it's monotonous almost which is okay like like you do train your muscles and whatnot but and for me it just doesn't translate to trying to bury a pin in a target at 20 yards or 60 yards or 100 yards or whatever it may be and then trying to execute a shot like it's easy for me not to pay attention to what i'm aiming at and and make a great shot right yeah so i i just think there's it's you know Blank bailing isn't all for naught, but I think really where you get the practice is taking what you learned there and bringing it to the field or bringing it to, um, you know, a little tougher shooting situation where it's windy or your shots do fall apart and, um, you know, not everything's so perfect and, and controlled. Yeah. Um, <clears throat> since it's August 1st, it's now the month before September. Yes, it and is. And we just went elk scouting. Mm-hmm. So we should talk about elk hunting. Um, why, why is archery elk hunting, like, why is that your thing? Why is that, like, your number one on the list of, I'm assuming, yeah, probably that, pretty uh, confidently that if you had <laughs> to pick one hunt, it would just be archery elk hunting. Yeah, if I couldn't, if I had to pick one critter to hunt for the rest of my life it would undoubtedly be archery elk um i there's a couple things i like about it i like the interaction with the animals right it's second to nothing there's there's no other animal on the planet that acts like a bull elk man they're big they're powerful they're ornery um they rip bugles and if you've ever had a bull scream in your face it's pretty hard not to fall in love with it yeah so uh yeah archery elk would be my number one for sure the pursuit is is most of the battle right and the places it takes you are incredible like hunting bulls in the mountains in the warm weather um even in inclement weather actually sometimes that's even more fun right getting snowed on or getting rained on and yeah sometimes those bulls get jacked up in that stuff but uh yeah archery elk is just something else and it's just a big suffer fest it's a it's a big test of character it's a big test of your preparation and your gear um they taste amazing and at the end of the day if you have the chance to zip a bull you're gonna walk away with 250 pounds of elk meat oh yeah so that's pretty tough to beat gotta pack it out yeah i mean there's you don't gotta get a backpack you should eat a stone glacier <laughs> yeah that, <laughs> shameless plug that goes without saying right uh okay but we'll come back to archery but uh, actually having a good backpack is really important and andrew's worked at stone glacier how long have you worked there now uh i started working with kurt in 2012 so eight years now nice mm-hmm. and you've talked to a lot of people who are calling yeah. in wanting a better backpack 
Can you explain why a good backpack is important and what to look for in a backpack and maybe why you've decided to work for Stone Glacier and why you believe in the products that we build? Yeah. So kind of a lot there, but. Yeah. Um, so basically the design philosophy, and this was, uh, as Jimmy Buffett says, um, necessity is the mother of invention. So Kurt Roscoe, back before there were many good pack brands out there, was buying, cutting, sewing different packs together so that he could build the lightweight, feature-filled pack that he was seeking. Um, and effectively, Stone Glacier was born from that. He was he was doing that, and then he decided to make his own frame from scratch. And basically, what he was seeking was a super lightweight, functional frame, um, with basically with a minimalist ideology that had what Kurt called and invented at the time was a load shelf. Basically, what that affords you is the ability to carry all of your necessary gear into and out of the mountains and it allows you to take all part of what well, depends what the animal depends on the animal you're hunting but it allows you to take all of or part of the meat on your first trip out right so basically basically cuts an entire round trip off of hauling meat so like if he was he kurt's basically the sheep killing uh, connoisseur and so Kurt was going deep for sheep when he lived in Alaska and he was building these backpacks so that he could kill his ram turn around and beat feet and not have to come back yeah. without putting meat in his pack getting blood in his pack etc or leaving his gear on the mountain so that was kind of his ideology um, I started to work for Kurt. I met Kurt through Pete Munich and Kurt had Kurt had the wheels turning at Stone Glacier. It was very much a hobby company at the time. Uh, but he, need, he needed some help. So uh, I was building backpacks in my garage in 2012 and 2013, basically just assembling these packs for Kurt um, before Stone Glacier was really even popular anybody knew who it was but i valued my relationship with pete i valued my relationship with kurt and i really valued the product that kurt was making um it was it was i dare say the first of its kind it really was the first of its kind right ultra lightweight yeah um incredible load hauling capabilities built-in load shelf etc so it was intriguing from the get-go. I, at the time, I was um, an independent contractor in Bozeman, and I was building houses and swinging a hammer. And kind of my my dream was to work in the hunting industry, and uh, I definitely saw this as an avenue to get there and, and try to build a career in this industry. So I pursued it pretty much with everything I had, and um, I was. 
there was a time where I wasn't sure if I was going to get the opportunity to work for Stone Glacier. And then not too long after, um, Jeff Spazito came into the equation and I earned myself a job. So that's the long and short of it. But yeah, uh, it's been a journey and I've been a part of the brand for a while, oftentimes behind the scenes until, oh, uh, I don't know, three years ago or something. But yeah, man, it's it's a cool, it's been a cool journey. I'm pumped to be a part of it and I'm pumped to see where Stone Glacier goes now that we've, um, we kind of took the dive into some other product lines and, you know, have have expanded out of just making backpacks so so what is a person what what <clears throat> why do they need a good pack yeah um prior to the load shelf prior to all these good packs coming onto the market you were just faced with the daunting task of going in with more than likely a subpar pack well yeah it used to be You'd go in with a day pack. Day pack, yeah. Or a, a backpacking pack, you know, probably made by someone like a Kelty or something. Yeah. Get I, your I, I, animal killed, hike out, get a pack frame that was super uncomfortable, go back in, get the meat, make your trips. It's kind of a long, right, not ideal process. Yeah, and, and there's, a, there's a pretty good chance that, right, there's always been good backpacking packs on the market. Um, I just don't they're not cut out for like the super heavy weight, right? Yeah. So you wear this pack in, um, and it's definitely not designed for hunters or by hunters. So it, you know, it does its job and that's about it. And then you harvest your animal and pretty quickly you got to turn around. Maybe you can carry some back straps or whatever out with you. Uh, but you, you, re you really don't do much damage as far as, um, you know, hauling meat and, and creating the least amount of trips for yourself. So you hike out and you have to go get a metal frame pack. And those metal frames are just like, I'm not even sure how I want to go about describing them, but they're, they're just like bare bones, right? It's a metal frame with like a mediocre hip yeah. belt and some shoulder straps. That's pretty, pretty simple clandestine kind of. Shoulder straps, waist belt, and frame with some, you know, straps to load meat into. Yeah, yeah, right, or or tie it on with paracord yeah. or something. So um, the evolution of packs, at least in the hunting world, has come quite a ways in the last decade. And there's a bunch of good brands out there. And a fair amount of them feature some degree of a load shelf or something like it where the bag separates from the frame and you can haul meat without having to leave your gear or put meat in with your gear so there's a lot of value in having a good pack um, the accessories are very hunter specific right so there's weapon slings and quick release slings and there's bow slings um, you can lay out a lot of pockets to organize your pack the way you like it they're tough most of them are built out of cordura uh, whether it be like 250D or 1000D or whatever. But um, they're just very geared towards the hunting pursuit. So, Yeah, and like Stone Glacier packs have 
everything's been designed in a, a layout for gear. I mean, whether there's spotting scope pockets or the way the zippers are set up to, yep, and you know, allow a bow to be strapped to a face of a bag and still get in access without unclipping it. So, you know, hunting backpack is a built to handle the weights of a successful hunter where, you know, a backpack company could feasibly handle it just from a mainstream company, but they're not built to comfortably carry hundred plus pounds. It's like, you know, most backpackers are probably in that 35 to 55, maybe 60 right. pound range. And that's what they're designed for. And they do a good job at that. Yep. But they have also a lot of pockets and a lot of unnecessary things. And when you're hunting and hiking off trail, you really want to trim a lot of excess off of that just keep yourself light and fast and nimble Mm -hmm. but then be able to turn around and make a big dent in a dead elk and get you know comfortably carry 100 pounds for you know whether it's half mile or 10 miles right yeah and i'm sure it goes uh the same for most other companies but like when kurt designs something there is literally a reason for everything right he's thought about exactly why the zipper should be 39.27 inches he's thought about exactly why a seam should go here or webbing should be derived from here and connect there um there's there is no part of any stone glacier pack that is an oversight or that kurt hasn't thought about yeah you know he's he's really a magician and has a very very creative and um direct design ideology he's he's incredible so so then a person decides all right i'm taking hunting seriously or maybe i'm not maybe i just have a one really cool hunt that i want to go all in on mm-hmm. even though I'll, that person's probably gonna get addicted to hunting but <laughs> if it goes if it goes well but so they decide they want to get a pack. What are like the features, you know, that a guy's looking for or should be looking for? Sure. You know, like there's probably a couple main things that are pretty key. Mm-hmm. Yeah, a, a big part of that is selecting a frame. Uh, and in a perfect world, we can get a frame on your back, right? That's the best way to do it. We'll make sure the frame is fit perfectly and you'll get a chance to kind of decipher which frame is going to work for you. So we make a handful of frames, but our two primary hunting frames are the Crux Evo and the X-Curve frame. So naturally, the X-Curve has an anatomically correct curvature to it. The Crux Evo is a straight frame and is the second generation of the original Crux frame. So in a perfect world, we would meet you at a trade show or you'd have the opportunity to come into the office and try a frame on or now you go to a dealer yep yeah i would recommend people put a pack on their back i mean we're not gonna be mad if you, if you buy a pack from us without putting one on but i feel like it's kind of like a bow or other stuff like you should you shouldn't put it on you should feel it yeah i agree and, and it's 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 a good backpack is definitely an investment it's a good investment Yep. And it's going to last a long, pro- I mean, I'd comfortably say there's, you know, three, for sure, three backpack companies that I think if you bought a 
pack from them. It should last your whole lifetime. Pretty much, yeah. And, and if ever there was an issue, I know uh, we at Stone Glacier will take care of you, and I'm sure they'll do the same. Mm -hmm. So, um, but yeah, so you're, you're trying to decide between the two frames. In my opinion, they are nearly created equal. There might be one frame over the other that's a touch more comfortable or has a touch better fit for your body style but I really don't think you can go wrong with either one um, I wore the crux frame then I wore the x-curve and now I'm back to the crux frame so I like them all I definitely err on the side of straight frame and that's just what what works for me uh, the crux evo also is super light comes in at two pounds seven ounces so that's a pretty tough figure to argue with. But really the only the only strong recommendation I make if you can't put a pack on is that if you are particularly short or have a really short torso, you run the Crux Evo frame, the straight frame. Uh, and it just seems like that tends to work better for folks of that nature because the X-curve is just a little more uh, geometry-specific, right? Like, if that curve doesn't match your back, it's not doing you any favors, right? Whereas the straight frame is, like, it, it works pretty unanimously. Yeah. So. What else? Good fit. Yeah. Uh, Do they need to worry about pockets or man, fit accessories? Is, fit is so important. Yeah, pockets and accessories are kind of to each their own. Uh, in my opinion, you don't need a lot of them. I, I have. Yeah, bag size might be good. I'd say like fit and bag size. Those are really like yep. dial those in, and the rest kind of will frame, fall into place. Frame choice, fit, and I'll call that fit and functionality, and bag size. Yeah, right. The rest is like, you know, you can pick it up. You can make your bag a little bit better here or there, or fit your needs, but. If you capture those three things, you have a turnkey hunting backpack setup. So uh, fit is really important. Um, a lot of people, and you see it all the time on hunting videos, they have this goofy gap between their the top of their shoulder or their shoulder blade and their shoulder strap. So there's just, there's just kind of this order of operations uh, to follow when you're putting a backpack on and once you this have is key listen if you're not <laughs> listening listen <laughs> once you have your fit uh it's it pretty much stays that way right like you don't yeah. need to make a bunch of adjustments but like when you when you fit your pack at your house you're probably going to get it really close if you follow our instructions and then it's super simple to make some on-trail adjustments but basically when you fit a pack you want to get your waist belt on and I always do it waist belt sternum strap tension your shoulder straps and last emphasis on last and certainly not least you'll set your load lifters so buckle your waist belt get it situated where you like it it's unique to the individual right you might like yours higher I might like mine lower just wherever the weight feels good wherever that belt rides on you and is most comfortable Buckle your sternum strap, tension your shoulder straps. Uh, and I try, I try to get 100% of the weight of my hips. And then after buckling my sternum strap, I will set the tension on my shoulder straps so that I'm like 80% of the, 
of the weight on my hips, 20% of my shoulders. Subsequent to that, I'll set my load lifters, and they do not need to be tight. That's a common misconception as mm -hmm. well. When you crank on those load lifters, what it does is transfers a pile of that weight to your shoulders, and you wind up compensating for it by hunching over, and yeah. it just makes for a terrible experience. So those load lifters, their job is to support the top of the frame and make sure that weight transfers vertically into your hips. If you crank them, again, it transfers that weight into your shoulders, um, and you've you've kind of nullified the point of having that pack. So, yeah, I think some of a lot of this translates to. I mean, I know that we're not really talking about photography, which is totally fine. But I will say from, from spending a lot of time shooting photos and a lot of video, a, a good pack fit is just as important for the guys that are carrying the camera because often you're carrying more weight on, you know, these hunts because you're carrying camera gear as well as all your gear to survive out there. And if you don't have the fit dialed and you aren't keeping that pack snug to your body in the correct way, you know, you're, you're, you're a lot of the day, you know, you're, you're going to be hiking, but then you're going to be crouching down, leaning over, kind of putting your body in weird positions to get shots. And if that bag's sloppy and it's pulling at you, you're just going to get worn out so fast, or you're going to, you know, basically be hitting certain muscles in the wrong ways that eventually they might, you know, stress and strain. And then you're hurting and you're not happy and you're not focused on what you're trying to do. And, you know, that attitude will translate into your hunter who's now bummed because they have a slow cameraman that's hurting and is in a bad, bad mood. So <laughs> I'd say, you know, anyone that's putting a backpack on really should make sure it fits well. And it's just going to go a long ways. Um, I, yeah, I have, I have two things to say about that. First thing is I feel bad for every photographer and cameraman <laughs> out there. My god you guys have a pile of gear yeah so kudos to you if you are pounding the mountains with camera gear as well as your hunting stuff it's pretty impressive yeah every time i pick up zach's bag it feels like he's got a cinder block in there <laughs> and my bag is like 10 pounds yeah. uh <laughs> second second thing i was gonna say is if you don't take the time to get comfortable with your backpack perfect your fit and learn about the functionality of it you are doing yourself a huge disservice right mm -hmm. you probably just spent anywhere from five to seven hundred bucks give or take on uh, a premium hunting backpack and for you not to go learn how to use it and what it's capable of is truly a disservice to you yeah it's a, just a bad investment at that point yeah it's not it's not an investment it's, it's yeah. you know it's a waste of money in my opinion for sure um, and, and I talk about it like I would talk about buying a nice rifle or buying a $1,200 bow. You don't buy, you don't buy gear like that. You don't buy a rifle and mount the scope, you know, you mount a scope with a turret the day before the season and expect it to perform for you and expect to know how to use it and, and exactly what the rifle is capable of, right? And that translates to bows. It translates to your gear. It translates to your boots, your backpack, your truck, right? Yeah, it's like you wouldn't go buy a new camera and new lenses and go on a photo shoot the next day and not have have 
done anything with it. Right. Same applies to the backpack. Yeah, like it, like it would be comparable to me trying to take my camera out tomorrow <laughs> and expect to be able to perform with it like Zach. It's just not feasible, right? I, I'm, just, it, I'm not capable of it. The camera is, but I don't know how to work that camera the way it deserves to be worked. So it's, cool. wor it's worth your time to go and call the manufacturers, look at videos, uh, get on a forum, whatever, but learn how to use your pack. It, it, it will serve you much better than if you don't. We're going we're to fast track to elk hunting, but... Um, I did want to just briefly and brief, oh, we gotta, briefly we gotta, talk we, we about we gotta go over bag, bag choice real quick. size. Yeah. Yeah. Yep. So super common question. Uh, what bag size should I get? In the world of Stone Glacier, we make a completely modular setup. So you can buy a frame, you can buy any bag that we manufacture and marry it to that frame. They all connect the same way. So it really depends what you're doing and what you intend to do in the future. So like if you know for a fact that you're going to be hunting out of a wall tent, ride your four wheeler in for the day and hike a couple miles and you're coming back to the wall tent every night, you probably don't need anything bigger than say like a 3,300 um, or a 3,600, something like that, right? It's enough even in late season to get optics a fair amount of layers, food, water, etc., into that pack. If you're going to do some longer stuff, right, if you're going to be exceeding that two, three, four-day hunt uh, or two, three, four-night stay, then you definitely want to jump into a little bigger bag unless, with an asterisk, you are a super minimalist packer, right? Like, it's it's pretty tough to go for three four nights in a thirty three hundred cubic inch bag. Yeah, in my, you, you in my opinion, so you you really have to have a lot of very nice gear that you're very dialed in with. Yep, like the lightest weight gear on the market and the smallest. Yep, there's ways to do it. You can use your load shelf to extend your range with a pack of that size. I used to do it all the time before we had as many bag options as we do but now uh i pretty much run a 5900 for everything and basically basically what the sg option affords you especially if you go with those expedition sized bags is two modes right so bivy mode which is day hunting mode and sky mode which is fully expanded um and what's nice about that is you can go fully expanded, go into camp, dump all your gear, and then go back into bivy mode. And our packs uh, have articulated seams, and they're sewn in such a fashion that they clean up really nice. So when you're in bivy mode, you don't just have this big mess of fabric and straps, right? They fold up, they articulate, and everything tightens up really nicely. So you can go, I guess the what I'm alluding to is you can go with a bigger bag, maybe a little big, a little bit bigger bag than you think you're going to be comfortable with. And it's still going to work for you. So like I, like I was saying, I run a 5,900, which is a pretty sizable bag. I run it in bivy mode 95% of the time and I'll use it for like an evening bear hunt or a seven day elk hunt, same bag, same frame, same accessories. And I'll just expand or contract it based on what I'm doing. Yeah. So, 
uh, jumping to the big end of our bags, the Sky Talus, uh, which is a 6,900 cubic inch bag, or the Sky Guy, which is a 7,900 cubic inch bag. Those are pretty unique to the big extended sheep hunts, um, goat hunts, you know, v very backpack specific hunts that have a long duration. So like 10 plus days. Yeah. So. All right. Uh, well, if you didn't learn anything, then you're probably super dialed. <laughs> <laughs> Hopefully there's some knowledge in there for you guys. Elk hunting. We are talking about elk hunting. Tell us an elk hunting story. Hmm. <laughs> I got a few of them. What do you want to hear about? Close Tell encounters, about failures. Your, how, how'd you get your bull dead last year? Yeah. Um, man, uh, sometimes it's better to be lucky than good. Last year, there was some luck involved and there was some skill involved. Um, I was... I played this game where I twiddled my thumbs for a minute about whether to drive out at night or drive out in the morning. And I went with the latter, which is usually never a good option, right? <laughs> like it, it fails almost every time you're yeah. always late. Something happens. You hit a deer on the way. It's just how it works. Drive over there at night folks. Yeah. That way you wake up in your spot, ready to charge. So anyway, I went with the ladder do as I say, not as I do. And I was late. So I'm mobbing into my elk hunting spot last year and um, up on this hillside, it just happened to catch my attention. I saw a cow elk dip over the hillside and I'm, I'm literally driving my truck and I watched this cow go over the hillside. So I drive up a little ways stop my truck turn it off and lo and behold there is a full-on rut fest like three quarters of a mile or a mile off the road so i'm i'm loaded to the gills i'm headed there for like four or five days i have a dirt bike on a hitch rack on the back of my truck which does not afford me access to the bed of my truck mind you I, I'm thinking I got to drive for a little ways, right? And like go and I'll have time to change and hike into my spot. So I'm, I'm driving out there in shorts and flip flops. And here's the ideal situation, right? Bulls are screaming, chasing cows, etc. So I pull over and tear everything off my truck literally as fast as I can. I'm I throw my dirt bike aside. I'm getting dressed as fast as I can. I eventually get squared away. Probably takes me 10 minutes. Um, meanwhile, I'm listening to bulls scream. So I take off. I made a big loop to get the wind right. And um, all these bulls are in this burn. And I get over there, and there are bulls ripping everywhere. I can't, I can't see an elk to save my life. But they're in there. <laughs> So I just do this slow play thing. I don't make a call. I don't make any sounds. I'm just kind of watching to see if they're going to move a general direction or if just by luck one walks up my way. And it doesn't really happen. Nothing transpires. Uh, so I, I 
continue to make a move downwind and there's basically this tiny little bench between the elk the little drainage the elk are in and the drainage I'm now in because I've circled them to get my wind perfect and I decide that I'm going to make a noise so I make a cow call and this bull hammers back and he can't be more than 150 yards away I can't see him but I know he's there and now I know he's super hot I make one more cow call and he hammers back again so I ditched my pack which I don't normally do uh, but because of the proximity to where I thought I was going to shoot from and my truck I decided I was going to take my pack off just so I could be as light and nimble as possible so I make those two cow calls this bull hammers back if he's I'm, I'm fairly convinced he's already on his way so I make a quick move towards the bull and slightly more downwind in, in case he tries to circle and catch my wind. I get up there, knock an arrow, and go completely quiet. And basically as soon as I knock that arrow, I look up and he is coming in, tongue hanging out, breathing hard, fully expecting to see a cow. And basically what I, what I had done after I made that cow call is I moved to the bull and further downwind so that he would no longer be aware of my calling location. Bulls are incredibly talented at pinpointing where sound comes from. So that's that was my thought process. I got up and moved, right? I don't have a caller, so I'm the only one who can make a noise uh, to try to benefit my situation. So I get up and move and he comes in he comes in quartering to me and comes to about 40 yards in this burn and I can't shoot him. I can hardly see him. I get one glimpse at him. I can tell he's a nice six point and no sooner he turns broadside and literally goes and stands above my backpack. <laughs> so which is which is ultimately a great situation. I was worried. I was actually worried he was going to smell my pack, um, but literally when he did it, I was like, "Ah, brilliant move, Andrew!" Because he went to within inches of my previous <laughs> calling location. So he's standing there looking for the cow that he thought he heard. Now I have a perfect quartering away shot at him while he's looking into the abyss that is the burn on the other side of that little bench. So I draw my bow back. He has no clue I'm there. He is t maybe 25 yards. And I settle in, take my time, pull through my shot. And I'm always aiming for the offside leg on those quartering shots. So I hit my mark and that bull piles up like I just shot him with a 338 Lapua <laughs> like just crunched him it, it looked like a spine shot right or, or, or the aftermath of a spine shot he yeah. piled up so uh, I killed my bull I was pumped I did admittedly while he was on the ground run another arrow through him just because I I really love elk I hate watching them die so I try to help them expire as quickly and 
painlessly as possible. So I ran a second arrow through him, and I actually I I guided for years, and I've watched a fair amount of bulls go. So it's 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 a sore subject for me. Actually, I hate it. I hate it. I would much rather walk up on the woods, or walk up on them in the woods, right? And they're completely expired. Yeah. I do not like watching them take their last breath. So I got up and walked away, and I actually went and uh, was trying to glass some other bulls while he expired. But I came back, um, you know, and he, and he was finished. And uh, yeah, it was, it was, it was an incredible hunt. It was like the quintessential elk hunt, but it was also like the easiest bull I had ever killed. Right? Usually, I like. Kill him in your sandals, dude. <laughs> yeah, man, I probably could have. Uh, but usually I grind and grit my teeth. And, um, you know, there's a lot of blood, sweat, and tears that go into punching my elk tag every year. And this one was just like. Yeah, man, why'd you have to burn all that good luck last year? I don't know. Now we're going to have to grind your no. bulls out this year. Nah, <laughs> well, that makes for better footage anyway, <laughs> right? I'll be back there calling them in. I'll be sucking them in to you, man. Yeah. Yeah, that's cool. Zach and I have. Um, kind of been trying to put a hunt like this together for a few years and I've always had one thing going on and he's always had another going on <laughs> hey, um, so this which is which is great right we're both busy in uh, pursuing critters and Andrew bailed on hunting Idaho with me it's okay uh, well there's a little <laughs> truth to that I actually I, I did the leg work I went and, I and did the scouting and then never ended up buying a tag for and I for the life of me I cannot figure out why I did that it was a few years back and I was a little younger and dumber than I am now yeah so uh yeah it's kind of When's, a head scratcher exactly. have you ever had two elk tags uh yeah last year oh yeah that's right yeah that's right so last year I hunted Idaho with Zach a little bit um he did not have a tag so Mm-mm. kind of the opposite situation yeah. but i i had was there shooting photos and calling that's right we were, we uh, were close came, Whoa, came together. we were close yeah um but i was i was there for the first few days it was freaking hot and the elk were not talking a lot and i ended up going back to montana going back to work and then went and killed my bull in montana uh, i think it was september 14th and then i went back to idaho and uh, I wasn't going to shoot anything unless it was big, big. And you got gas chasing the big boy. Yeah, man, I got smoked. <laughs> but I had I, I had a great day elk hunting. I probably in the first two hours I let um, two five points and a small six point walk by me, and it was a great position to be in because usually I'm all distraught about punching my elk tag and um, <laughs> you know making making sure that the rubber meets the road during elk season. So. But it was yeah, it was nice. I was just relaxed and having fun and calling bulls in. And I eventually did find a big bull, and uh, man, he he did not want to play the game. He wanted to do the exact opposite. So I I located him and moved in on him and bugled at his cows, and um, he packed up and ran. I mean, he yeah. ran. I watched him across the adjacent hillside going about 100 miles an hour (laughs) (laughs) without his cows and i was like what on god's green earth man that's that is like the last thing you expect to see right a big bull like that just turns and burns yeah you don't want to kill him then i'd say i don't want to kill that one yeah well you don't want to come and fight then he's he's not our boy he's not it man 
but it actually it did. It made me want to kill him more. <laughs> can't let him. Can't let him be passing those genes on. Man, he he was a smart bull. So I knew, I actually his cows eventually bail chasing him, and they all go to the same place. They settle back down. I got back in on him, and I bugled at him again. And in same result. So I quickly decided that was not the that was not the correct uh, appro- the approach to killing this bull. So I went quiet. I let him. I was able to keep an eye on him. He he started to work really high into this country, and he eventually went up into the fog and bedded. And I went up to try to get behind him. I literally had to climb to the top of the mountain. He was bedded like 50 feet below the ridge line. So I climbed to the top of the mountain, went over the backside of the ridge, went all the way down, and very quickly a storm blew in. And the wind, instead of coming up the mountain and being in my favor, starts to come from the opposing side of the mountain and blow back down to him. So I made this huge effort to get up behind him. And I literally could have... If the wind stayed consistent, I would have walked down the ridge. I would have popped over and more than likely drawn my bow and killed this bull. But, but no. no. But no, as is often the case. So uh, it's a snowstorm. It's wet snow. It's nasty, man. It is no time to be on the ridge of this mountain. So I stuck it out for probably an hour, hour and a half, and it was brutal. So I decide in my infinite wisdom... <laughs> to go back down the mountain, circle underneath him, and come up the opposing side, which would have afforded me another chance at killing him. And I went down the mountain, man, and I don't know, I've never had this happen to me before, and I generally am pretty fit for elk season, and uh, I don't have a lot of quit in me. So like, if i got to get somewhere, I'm going to get there. Whether it takes me 10 minutes or five hours, I'm more than likely going to get there. But my legs, man, just locked up. So I don't know if I don't know if it was a result to me crushing country and not eating food and not taking care of my necessities. Too many twisted teas, dude. Too many twisted teas, <laughs> yeah. <laughs> too, too much complacency and... and uh, you didn't have to hunt hard enough in Montana probably was the problem. Yeah, that's probably the case. <laughs> yeah, that's a real ball kicker when the elk win and you're just defeated. Man, and it was like, like <sighs> there was nothing I could do to change that situation, at least in my own mind, right? Like every step, my quads cramped so badly. I had I literally would take a step and have to get down on the ground and pull my ankle towards my rear end to get my quad to free up both Dang. sides so i yeah man i was i was totally defeated um and that basically capped off that day i i the hate the bull I decides hate. he wants to come down and just walk by you as you're like trying to like uncramp your thigh <laughs> that's that is probably what would have happened I would have gone to shoot. I would have gone to shoot him at full draw or something, and my quad would have cramped, and I'd probably have shot the ground three feet in front of me, and that bull would have laughed at me. Uh, but yeah, that was tough. That's a tough pill to swallow. Um, that's literally why I work hard to get in shape every year to prevent anything like that from happening. So, 
it was obscure, um, and I really I don't exactly know what happened, so I don't know how to prevent it from happening again, other than just to to make sure I'm eating and drinking, uh, because I did not do a particularly good job of that that, that day. But yeah, man. Uh, yeah, man. Oh, that bull haunts my dreams. He's he's a nice bull. He's not, you know, he's not a Boone and Crockett bull, but he's a nice big mature six point. He probably scratches that like. 330 caliber bull mm -hmm. so not not one that's easy to walk away from especially under those circumstances he's gonna be there this year yeah so zach and i are headed back this year We're going in there for him i didn't have a tag there last year i photographed with andrew and then i went and a buddy of mine that i became friends with when we went to new zealand and helped us and hunted with us on our tar hunt uh, he stag hunts a bunch, and I was like, you got to come hunt elk, dude. They're probably very similar to stag, but they're bigger. And so he bought a tag. I said, if you buy a tag and carve the time out, like, I will come out and call and help you guys out for four or five days. And so uh, I hadn't actually seen that bull, but Ben had sent me video of him, like, the day after I left. So I knew about him. And then Andrew went in and got on him. Now it's pretty late in archery, so as long as a, a rifle hunter didn't get him, he'll be there. I suspect he will. I hope he is. He's no slouch, man. He knows what's up. I know a couple of his haunts. Yeah, I fully expect to catch up with him or his twin brother this fall. Yeah. And we'll be well equipped. There's So you, myself, and a, a guy by the name of Nate Hill are going, and Nate's a savage, Zach's a savage. Um, I'm pretty mediocre, but I try hard. So we'll <laughs> we'll have a good season. He's being too humble. We'll have a good season regardless, man. And arrows are going to fly, and uh, we're going to come off that mountain with heavy packs. I'm sure of it. Oh, yeah. Well, sweet, dude. Uh, we'll wrap it up. You wanna? You got any last closing statements about uh, the, the current state of society? Yeah. <laughs> uh, <laughs> Yeah, man, I'm I'm just not a big fan of it. Um, I, I personally, I think it's a bunch of political rhetoric. I'm I don't agree with what's happening. I I agree with humanity and being good to others and equality, but uh, whatever is happening right now is is the wrong path. It's it's counterproductive. People, I'll, just, I'll yeah. just leave it at that. I will say, people need to dig a little deeper, and not, and they need to to look into the fact that what most people consume, as far as media, is controlled by people with agendas, and uh, just don't be sheep. The government is not your friend. No, I mean Period. I I uh, will vote yeah. for Trump this fall. And like a lot of his policies, there's things I don't like about him. And I think government has its place, but I think what's being pushed by the left, uh, that agenda is just uh, going to be a massive failure if they get the way they want. I mean, the censorship and the distortion of classes of people and everything that comes with it and, you know, just wanting to know everything about us and taking our liberties and freedoms i mean look at china you think the chinese people at one point wanted to get to where they're at like look at history people are slowly manipulated 
into a position that it's hard to come out of. And I guess I'm on the side of things of, I don't want you to start at square one with me. You know, like I don't want to yeah. give any of it up. I'm, yeah. As as uh, as harmless as it is made out to be, and socially pushed, you it's know, a, it's not even it's not even meant to be harmless. It's meant to be like, this is for you. This is for your. This is for the betterment of you and your family and your society. Like we're we're making it safe for you. Like that's not the case, in my opinion. Yeah. Um, it's it's just the beginning of the end. For sure. I'm I'm a big believer that if you give them an inch, they'll take a mile, and probably a whole lot more than that. So, Agreed. Uh, yeah, just just think for yourself, do your research, um, you yeah. know, inform form your own opinions. Yeah, have your own opinion. I think that's great. If we disagree, that's fine as long as you have a reason for your opinion, and yeah, just don't uh, distort other people's reality and push it on them, and weird ways <laughs> yeah zach zach and i have have lots of conversations about this topic and we're pretty like-minded on it um we're starting a new podcast it's <laughs> 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 currently uh titled the conspiracy theorists <laughs> it's just stuff like you know anytime you question the common narrative. All of a sudden, now it's conspiracy theory, and it's yeah. Uh, wh- why is that? Conspiracy theory. I'm pretty sure was a term created by I want to say the FBI to alienate the idea that the thoughts of anything, you know, that the government doesn't always have your best interest at hand, or that there's behind the scenes shady shit that goes on. You know, like. I don't see it that way. It basically was it, meant to downplay that person's yes, opinion. It's basically your, your discrediting your opinion. You're crazy. That is so far out there. I can't even listen to you. That That is, I have been called a conspiracy theorist time and time again, and oftentimes by my family. And at first I'm like, man, like, am I? And then I think about it and I'm like, no, like, I, I'm thinking for myself. I'm trying to see through these things. I don't just buy in to what Donald Trump tells me. I don't buy in to what the media tells me. I don't buy into what Hillary Clinton tells me, right? They don't care about me. They don't care about you. They care about their wallets and their peers, maybe. Maybe yeah. their peers. But, yeah, certainly it's uh, the government seems to have a very self-serving agenda, which I'm just not identifying The thing with. I like about Trump is that he's all about limiting and not growing government yeah which i can definitely get down with i so. like the government because they they pave roads i like the government <laughs> because Heck yeah. they at least to some degree protect our public lands and do things like that so yeah so there's a lot of good features of the government yeah it's oversight are. and overreach and greed and wanting to control and and use their power to fit their agendas yeah. And, you know, I think we just need to find fair ways to discuss things and keep things transparent and let let people say what they want to say. You know, I don't you say what you want. Freedom of speech is great. It is. So I don't care so if you are on the amendment. far, 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 far left, far, far right. You should be able to say that. You should be able to tweet it. People need to quit being babies. And, yeah, Second Amendment's a big one. I just bought a handgun. I have a concealed carry permit. 
like, do I feel like I need to do that for my own safety on a day-to-day basis? No. I like having that right. I'm going to exercise that right. And I'm going to carry when I feel like carrying. And yeah. Yeah, it was funny. I, uh, I put myself through college working for this guy um, who's just like a freaking red-blooded American. He is a, he's in the Air Guard, has been for, man, I want to say 30 years. Just an awesome dude. And he, all, he always talked about the uh, principle of everybody getting a trophy and how bad it was for society and how bad it was for the the kids who were you know in that younger age class at Mm -hmm. that time and man if this isn't the manifestation of that i don't know what is he like he hit the nail on the head time and time again and i was always like yeah yeah whatever like i didn't care about politics at the time and i didn't have a lot of insight into society or how it worked or what the far left looks like or what the far right looks like um but man, he was he was just spot on. Yeah. We usually had those rants while we drank uh, Miller Lights on the drive home from work. Nice. So. Yes. Well, sweet. Yeah. Well, we burned up some road, getting close to home, and people yeah. called a wrap on that, dude. Yep. Sounds good. Well, that was a good uh, that was a good scouting rip, Zach. I'm glad we went. For sure. Um, and if anybody has any questions, comments, concerns, don't well, hesitate. What's your Instagram handle so all the peeps can follow you? Mm, I think it's <laughs> at Andrew underscore Whitney. Um, it is. I believe is you're it? correct. Yep. Sometimes I forget if the underscore we, is in the middle or at the end. No, it's in the middle. I always have to plug it in to YouTube captions where you're in the video. So oh, perfect. I end up remembering those. So Yeah. Well, don't, don't hesitate to reach out if you've got a question or, you know, want to say anything or comment on my political views (laughs) whatever it may be i'm all ears Uh, all right so sweet signing off thanks for listening